Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Miriam Nice. In this episode, I'm speaking to Jeremy Lee of Quivardis about his favourite dish, a smoked eel sandwich. Originally from Dundee, Jeremy came from a family who put importance on home cooking and credits his parents and grandmother for teaching him the mysteries of finding good produce through good shopping. Something Jeremy applies to the menus at Quivardis, where the cooking is bright, fresh, light, modern and quintessentially British. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. How are you doing? Thank you, Miriam. Very well indeed. It's what a pleasure and an honour to be here. Okay, so back to the beginning then. Tell us how you got into cooking and how it's led you to where you are now. How I got into cooking? Golly, um, so many things factored into it. But I think primarily, first and foremost, it was um, eating well at home was the order of the day. Um, Mum cooked something for always, and we always had a built-in clock when to to come back from gambling in the hills above our house where we lived in Dundee, just outside. In the hills, uh, in a little village called Ochterhaus, and back we'd come, you know, knowing when a pan of lentil soup was going to be put on the table with much bread and tons of butter. And it was always delicious and always good and nourishing and warming and wonderful. And it's one of the crazy things about having, um, you know, growing up is the memory of these dishes because so much about cooking is evocative and bringing back, you know, memories that warm as much as the dishes and as they are as nourishing. And I think my grandmother was much the same because I lunched with her a lot when I was a kid growing up, particularly when I was at school. And they, and then I had parents who thought nothing of bundling their kids into the back of a car and trawling all over the fair county of Angus, um, which everyone always forgets about because it's on the East Coast rather than on the beauteous, legendary West Coast of Scotland. Um, but it does provide much of uh, the larder of Scotland. It's an incredible county on which there is a great deal. It's 
I've got a thousand microclimates, which are brilliant for growing raspberries. And we grew up surrounded by raspberry fields. I didn't really stand much of a chance, frankly. Food <laughs> food was just norm then. I was going to say, with this sort of lifestyle, and you just sort of had this pivotal moment of like, right, I'm going to do it as a job, or is it just this is what's happening? No, I think one of the things that's so interesting about my generation and so many of my peers, when we started, there wasn't a plan. We fell into it by happenstance because it's hard to remember there was a time when the restaurant business really um, almost didn't exist. It was uh, They were expensive or they were in hotels and a lot of them really weren't very good. You know, and food, to like food back then was almost fetishistic, you know, and really quite, you know, you really got, you know, it was almost like heresy and witchcraft. You were looked at askance. And so it was kept quiet. And then I think slowly this incredible awareness about eating well and cooking well came. And a lot of it came through great books. Mum always had a great pile of books. And I think growing up at a time when there was only three television channels and you were on a remote part of the east coast of Scotland, you know, your contact with the outside world was the written word. So books were devoured and magazines. And there was the great glory days of the Sunday Times and the Observer when they were huge broadsheets. And in those pages, you would find Jane Grigson and Claudia Roden, which my mum just devoured. And, you know, we'd sit at the counter in the kitchen, you know, with a cigarette in one hand and a coffee in the other, trawling through a pile of cookbooks, a notepad in one hand, pen in the other, you know, and just deciding what she was going to cook. And then she would get up and she was a very elegant cook, mum, you know, and so she would just gracefully just float through this kitchen making wonderful things that we just adored. What did you think about you doing cookery as a job? Well, I think like most parents, very grateful to have a child in employment, like off their hands at last, you know. They had done quite enough. I mean, they'd hemorrhaged, um, considering mum was a domestic science teacher and dad was an illustrator for DC Thompson. You know, they they very sweetly and very generously put their four kids through a private education. Um, and thereafter, they went, right, you're on your own. There was no, amazingly from them, there was no pressure to become, you know, and to jump on the bandwagon of success and grasping and get there. Um, they very generously and sweetly let us just grow and become ourselves. Wild, pretty crazy, um, but we got there. And so, you know, where my two older brothers had gone to art college, and I was en route there, I suppose, and then I got a job to earn some pocket money and a little beautiful manor house that had opened just down the road from where we lived. And initially a waiter. Um, that was very quickly scrapped, as I wasn't very good at it. And this will give you a vague idea of the respect chefs were held in back then. Instead of sacking me, they put me in the kitchen. <laughs> so something happened. Um, and three very young chefs who were running the kitchen then, who had been trained deeply classically in what was once called the British Transport to Tell tradition, which had its roots firmly based in Escoffier's teachings, um, took this gawky, awkward young teenager under their wing. And um, suddenly I had an apprenticeship under my belt. And at the age of 21, they just said, right, what are your plans? And I went, what plans? And they went, oh, God, you know, Right, that's it. You know, you've pushed on through, you've done a good job. 
Um, you're going to go to London and cook with our alma mater, Keith Podmore at Boodle's Club. And that was it. You know, they literally packed my suitcases for me and put me on a train with mum and dad going, bye-bye, dear. Well, <laughs> just ex- amazing. <laughs> just like, extraordinary. Also, I just love that that sort of vision of you on the way to art school and just getting swept away by <laughs> restaurants and food. I just think it sounds incredible. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Um, so you have brought a favourite dish with you today. Yes. Talk us through it and what makes it so special to you. Well, the smoked eel sandwich, um, and I do say the, because it's become this thing, um, which was never intended. And it harks back to days when I cooked to Alistair Little on Frith Street. And Alistair Little, along with Simon Hopkinson, who I also cooked with at Mabendum, were the, amongst the very first to start exploring the depths of British cookery and um, this new modernity that was coming to it. And like Faye Masher, I hesitate to use the words godfather because they were very gentlemen. And not for them, the rough-and-tumble kitchens that are what people often associate with um, our workplaces. And amongst the incredible produce that we were all exposed to as young cooks and eyes out on stocks and an amazement. And we were, you know, suddenly we were in this very enlightened realm where the green baize door was pulled down. Um, And in amongst all this produce were these remarkable smoked eels. Um, which are the most bizarre-looking things. These great, long, bronzed, beautiful things that look like something out of Davy Jones' locker. They're remarkable. And Alistair had a delivery every week that was wrapped in paper. And it literally arrived like a quiver of arrows. You know, you open this parcel and you're like, wow, what's in here? And you only have ever bought seven or eight, because even then, there are the murmurings of sustainability and what on earth is happening to the eel population and what are we doing to our oceans? Um, and the devastating amounts of eel that were vanished had turned what had once been this most common of ingredients into really the most glorious and unique, highly deluxe ingredient. Uh, Never intended, just happenstance, as happens with a lot of things. And those, because Alistair's then partner, the lovely Kirsten Peterson, um, who he founded Alistair Little on Frith Street with, um, was Danish. And the Danes have a a greater love for smoked fish, if that's possible, than the Brits. And because they're such a huge part of a great history and tradition of food and produce in the UK, uh, they properly intrigued me and piqued my curiosity. And Alistair used to do this lovely thing where he piled smoked eel on, you know, an omelette of eggs and chopped tomato. And it was this remarkable dish. God, it was good. So delicious. And then um, I, you know, carried on this thing. And then they went on a potato pancake with piled with horseradish and bacon. You're like, this is incredible. Wow. What, you know, I mean, we'd never seen food like this on, in restaurants. You know, the odd home possibly, but never in a restaurant. So it was, it was throaty, you know, scales falling away from your eyes moment. And then um, they were delivered by a man called Mr. Beale. And Mr. Beale, um, whose company was eponymously called Mr. Beale's Eels, uh, would come in every week with this one and drop this bundle off. And then it transpired as we got to know him better that he was the last of the Lincolnshire Fen men, and which was the, one of the great homes of eels in the United Kingdom on the East Coast. And transpired he was one of the very last. This was the, the, the only thing he did was smoked eel. 
And so in love with that, I came, it came with me to the Blueprint Cafe where I served a tenure of 18 years. And as a dear friend once said, what on earth did you do? Lifers get less, dear, you know. And I was like, God, you know, what's that supposed to mean? You know, I think I'll take that as a compliment, but I'm not sure. And there, um, because we were buying our loaves of incredible French sourdough, and then we always had tubs of freshly grated horseradish cream and bowls of beetroot and all sorts of shenanigans because we love pickles and, you know, spiky, feisty, hot relishes and sauces. Um, and out of all of this um, came the first smoked eel sandwich, which in the originally was this huge big thing because they were quite, re well, they were reasonably priced back then, sadly not anymore. And then um, over time, it became this much neater, um, lovely little thing. And when I come a time when the Design Museum moved and I that I moved to, having been offered by Eddie and Sam Hart um, the role of partner with them in Quo Vadis on Dean Street. An amazing opportunity that um, only you could only say yes to, even looked at it and just went, what on earth is this huge thing in my life now? Um, and packed in my bag was the recipe for the smoked tail sandwich. And when we were doing the first menus, which are based around a series it's a cat um, with a lot of boxes, sort of redolent and a big nod to old brasserie and bistro and menus of old. So you'd have little things all over the place. And on the top right-hand corner um, was going to go a truffle sandwich. And of course, truffles that winter were unbelievably rare and shockingly expensive. It's the only reason why one of our countenance this, this smoke deal on, because its price is beyond truffles now. And this, uh, we couldn't get truffles. So I went, well, why don't we pop a smoked eel sandwich on this? And we did. And golly gee, I mean, um, the response was deafening and extraordinary. It's never been off the menu since. I mean, it's delicious. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a testimony to Fett Sampler and keeping it simple, which I love very, very much and was buried very deep in me from granny and mum and dad and then these chefs I work with Alistair and Simon and so it's a continuation of this um, and mention also must be made of Terence and Priscilla Conran who had a huge impact on me on you know developing a, and honing taste and what a dish could be and the simplicity of two crisp fried slices of bread lathered in butter lots of butter shameless, it's a shameless dish and then uh, the smoked eel sat on a big spoonful of feisty smoked horseradish cream and a very lovely big spoonful of Dijon mustard cream on top of that and it's how hilarious that even Dijon mustard has now become even rarer than smoked eel and so the whole dish is a little bit outrageous but um, you know we persist I was quite tempted to make people as a, like gifts like jars of Dijon mustard because you just can't. It's a real struggle to get. You can find it a bit more now, but there was a whole yeah, point where you couldn't get it. Just what is going on? You know, I mean, we just need to know. You know, any, you know, I mean, everyone who's been <laughs> did bring a smile to my face because all those doubting Thomases that were saying, "Oh, there's no such thing as global warning," and then you have to say, "Well, an entire mustard crop the size of Canada fails." It is pause for thought, yeah. to say the least. Yes. Um, no, it's delicious. I have had it in the restaurant and I did make the recipe that you sent over and made it last night. And I foolishly put mascara on when I was grating the horseradish, oh. which I immediately <laughs> regretted, but oh. it was worth every tear. Well, if the tears don't flow, there's something wrong. wrong. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well done, you. You must have cut you must have looked like Clara Bow. Wonderful. Thanks. Um <laughs> so when would you say that it's a really good time to eat it? I felt that it was like a really celebratory dish for me. I thought it felt really special. I was looking around for a glass of champagne when I had it yesterday. <laughs> Somebody bring me some champagne. Oh, 
Gosh, you're good. Uh, well, you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It is a wonderful thing. And has that brilliant quality of being um, either um, amongst a few other things to start a dinner or a lunch, um, or it's a lovely thing in itself. Um, and with a glass of champagne or a very good muscadet as well as very good. Or a great burgundy. You know, it likes good wine. It's got a very expensive taste. It did feel that way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the way you've written the recipe because I think there's a lot of care has been applied. It's quite simple. Um, but also like down to the way, you, you know, you're quite exacting about how to toast the breads and like there's a little bit of butter on there. And um, I just thought it was really beautifully written and like how thinly the onions should be sliced because it Thank just gives you, you that balance of the flavour um, we did ask some guests like is there a, a twist or a variation I think you were like no there's no <laughs> absolutely not you know what was it Madame Arcati said in um, Blythe Spirit she said oh Mr Condamine I'll have one of those excellent martinis but please any concoctions no thank you <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So we don't do con we don't do concoctions. But if you can't get any eels, I think you said that smoked mackerel would be permitted. Yes, yeah, smoked mackerel is great, and I mean any great smoked fish would be delicious. Um, and a really good smoked trout, I think, is lovely. Um, and because no one can afford real smoked salmon, the wild smoked salmon, and given its scarcity and its price, is probably the clue that we shouldn't be eating it at all. You know, until that poor benighted fish is restored to its former magnificence. I think. Yeah. So if people are able to get hold of some smoked eel and they do have a little bit left over, because I think the recipe is like seventy-five grams. Oh yes, I know. Modesty blazers. <laughs> <laughs> That's each though. That's for each one. Okay, so you can okay. make lots, okay. and it keeps very well. Nice. But is there anything else they could use the eel for if they wanted to get? Well, creation? in um, I've I've just done a book which has um a couple of other recipes in it because there's Alistair Little's Keep It Simple, which is what has that beautiful omelette with chopped tomato and smoked eel and, and horseradish, which is great. But there's also a lovely potato pancake recipe, which is based on Georges Blanc using his mum's recipe, which we cooked a lot at um, when potato pancake. It was, it was a dish that appeared everywhere, crazily. And uh, as, you know, as chefs always get excited about, and, you know, that, what that thing is going to be. And this lovely cloud of potato pancake heaped with smoked eel and horseradish cream and bacon and a poached egg too, which is rather good. That sounds terrific. Yeah. You mentioned about how important, like, the produce was like growing up like how important was it like eating together as a family oh gosh eating together is vital um and it's um, really is something that was buried very deep inside her children by mum and dad and granny that no matter what happened in the world if you got us all sat together at table eating good food um the woes were banished and if it was celebratory the celebrations were great <laughs> so I think it's vital to sit at table uh, with near and dear. And even if it's just yourself, it should be lovely. Final question before I give you some quick fire questions. <laughs> be prepared. Um, do you <clears throat> typically eat a Sunday lunch? And if so, what do you cook? Do you like getting together with friends and family? Oh, Sunday lunch. Uh, yes. Well, because we've got this curious realm we inhabit now at Corvallis because we close Sundays and Mondays. Um, so they're kind of, the, so instead of having a Saturday Sunday off for a weekend, I mean, that was rare enough anyway in the old days. Um, but Sundays are new Saturdays. So um, the one thing, I go immediately, 
I springs to mind that I want to do is just go immediately to um, a Chinese restaurant and eat dim sum, which I just love. And failing that, my sister makes a brilliant cheese souffle, which I'm absolutely obsessed with and and crave and ask for often. Um, and so the Sunday roast, not so traditional so much, because that because you know, we do lots of lovely things like that at the restaurant. So I'm not so obsessed with getting to that part of the, that day of the week. And Sunday is, um, I think, part of that decompressing after quite an intense week. Uh, it's lots of lovely little things rather than one great big storm. Because I find that big plate of food, and I find this more and more with friends, well, it's quite daunting. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually lots, you know, lots of tastes of things and what have you. And so I think, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a change in people's eating habits. And we see it a lot in the restaurant um, and, you know, and just in produce generally, you know, the folk like lots of, you know, they're, they're interested in things and they like quite highly flavored things and they don't need lots of it. And so a Sunday lunch, I mean, I would be as happy with a great plate of risotto as I am with a roast. Um, so also I've got no, I'm of no fixed menu on a on come a weekend um, and very happy to go for complete potluck. And if it's a pan of soup or a risotto or a roast, equally happy or a big pie. And what makes the cheese souffle so good? Tons of cheese. Great. More cheese. <laughs> More cheese. <laughs> All right. Uh, quick fire. Yes. What's your most well-thumbed cookery book? Oh, golly gee, would have to be French Provincial Cooking by Elizabeth David. Why do you like it so much? Uh, because it's a masterpiece of just exquisite writing, brilliantly evocative. It's, it's wonderfully transportive and every recipe I've ever cooked from it worked, um, which, you know, being a chef or by trade, uh, normally we don't really, I don't really follow recipes. I'm more inspired by the thought behind them. And Elizabeth David is incredibly intuitive and has a wonderful way of penning a recipe that will get you there. And as Julia Child wisely once observed about her, no matter what you do with an Elizabeth David recipe, something good will come of it. Marvellous. What music do you cook to? Oh, well, not so much music as a film. Yeah, because when I was growing up, Dad filled our house with music, and it would be lots of film soundtracks, lots of Russian composers and French, and we, you know, and it was it was a wonderful mix and music, lots of musicals. But one of the things I do find is I, I enjoy time in the kitchen, and I love being distracted while cooking. And a film playing on a laptop, so often there's a laptop just plonked in a fruit bowl or something, <laughs> looking out from a bunch of artichokes, you know, with a Hitchcock playing is rather it good. Sounds a bit like my kitchen. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. Oh, great. Good um, stuff. What cheap eats or restaurant pub market would you recommend? For cheap eats, ooh. Well, I'll tell you what I love, being blessed, because I live in Hackney, which has got an incredible array of Vietnamese and Turkish and Cypriot shops, uh, along with an astonishing array of bakers and good things and a good market. So I'm very spoiled. And I think one of the things I love making best is going to the ginger pig on, um, if I'm allowed to say that, a very good butcher on uh, Victoria Park and getting a ham hock, you know, a little pig's trotter and making lentil soup. 
Cheapest chips, utterly delicious. It's like a bowl of central heating. Marvellous stuff. And almost a national dish of Scotland. And that's great. And then failing that, um, if, you know, if there's a naughty nibble required, going to the Vietnamese um, shops and buying bags and bags of frozen dumplings, which is a very naughty nibble. And infinitely more fun than most stuff you can take away from, which is very good. Good shout. Something that's always in your fridge. Oh, golly gee. Always in my fridge. Yogurt. A really good Neil's Yard dairy yogurt, uh, a jar of Grace Burn cheese, a good feta. Um, there's always good cheese at home because I'm a great believer. If nothing else, if you've got good bread, good butter, good eggs, and good cheese, something good will come of it. Great. Uh, now on to some foodie confessions. Oh, guilty. Taking it. No, but I was just like, yeah, I have. Sorry, Well, Miriam. I'm Scottish, so I'm just going to say yes. I'm guilty. Yeah. You're always guilty of something. Uh, biggest cooking disaster. Oh, golly gee, how many? How long have you got? Uh, um, five to ten minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, let's see what we can do. Um, I think most cooks learn from their mistakes. So there have been many. Um, and I lucked out working with chefs who didn't beat their disaster, you know, really did muck up. In fact, quite the opposite. They kind of led the way. So I think the funniest one I remember is putting a whole, about 12 quiche in the oven for a dinner we were cooking for Mark Hicks at the Blueprint Cafe. All of them leaked. No. The whole lot leaked. And I stood there and the chef who'd put them in red, he just fled. Just left the building. I was like, come, go. Then I'd about find him. And brilliantly, I don't know how yes, fate would have it, because fate always smiles in some crazy way. You're like, okay, well, this is quite odd. And amazingly, sort of, the leakage stopped and baked, so we were able just to top them up and, you know, something came of it. Um, but there is a great adage, you know, it's not really how good a cook you are, it's how good you are at, you know, <laughs> bailing the ship when it's going down in the sinking thing. So that was an interesting one. Um, and then there was a hilarious one when we got um, the wrong type of lamb. And we thought we'd bought marsh lamb, but in actual fact, it was a, it was a much younger one. Um, and it was in the oven cooking away. And I what's that funny smell? Um, and they'd cooked in a trice. We should have just cooked them in a frying pan rather than in the oven. Um, and so that was, that was interesting. You know, so we had to um, solve that somehow. And I think I've blotted most of it from memory. <laughs> I don't know what I did, but I sorted yeah, it. Something, well, something good came of it, because, you know, that's what we do. You know, and I think that's what cooks become adept at going, oh. And so you have that old adage. Well, this is how it's supposed to be, really. You know. um, what food have you never tried? There are so many foods I would love to try in situ because I think living on an island um, that imports everything from everywhere, I would love to travel more and I would love to explore Vietnam more, Korea for sure, um, and China. Because um, you just have that, and India, these enormous realms um, that we only know um, a minuscule about. And what we eat, we can only hope and pray is the genuine article. And rather like wine traveling a planet, you know, does it travel well? And I often wonder have dishes traveled as they should. And so I find that endlessly fascinating. But I would, I would love to eat more in situ. And in the full knowledge, this is how it should be. It's my thing, I think. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, and your guilty pleasure, if you want to refer <laughs> it to that. I, I mean, guilty you. pleasure. Oh, my God. So many. 
so many. Um, I think well, there's no guilt involved in this yeah. one actually because it's just pure greed. Um, and it goes, I think, from a great stack of American pancakes drenched in maple syrup which I used to love with my dad when we had, there was a big pancake place in Dundee and oh, just in Tandries even, actually. And we loved that. And it was a great treat because he's um, trained as an artist after art school in Canada and fell madly in love with maple syrup. And being a Scot and handing it on to his children had a tremendous sweet tooth. So, and the Scots love baking. So anything baked, usually. Naughty cakes and pancakes. Yeah, pancakes. Any others? Can I have oh, more? Well... Chinese dumplings. Yeah. Thousands of them. Like a Manhattan skyline of towers and baskets of, you know, gorgeous dumplings and loads of them. Um, I'm shocking everyone by the sheer amount of it. And then they just look at me and go, oh, you're, <laughs> you know, and so just the chopsticks blur, which I love. That's so great. Um, and the last question, what makes you optimistic for the future? What makes me optimistic? Well, I think there is this great thing. It's not our first time at the rodeo. Um, and having grown up through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the what have you, having seen disasters galore, one of the things I am constantly amazed about is uh, the ability for the Brits to get right to crisis level before they react and respond and do so with incredible um, efficiency and, and, you know, ability. And none more so than when the pandemics began and the lockdowns um, were enforced and we were all washed up at home. And looking at the food community at large, which I think the scale of it took everyone's breath away. I don't think anyone had quite appreciated how vast this enormous body is and what it actually encapsulated the length and breadth of the country throughout all these islands. Um, and it overnight turned itself into the biggest survival mission imaginable. Um, and I mean, the, the furlough scheme was was great, but really it was the inventiveness of this entrepreneurial spirit that is the backbone of this country that really shines through. And so that gives me great glee. And the fact that we're very greedy and very curious people. Brilliant. Excellent. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure to chat to you today. Thanks, my dear. Thanks for having me. A great pleasure and honour. Oh, and I can't wait um, for you to share your recipe for that smoked eel sandwich with everyone. Very good. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can listen to that bonus cook-along coming soon. For details, see bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast. See you next time. Bye.